Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 418. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and so happy to be back from my adventures in Orlando, where I was attending two podcasting festivals. I told you all that I was, this podcast, Therapy Chat, I was a finalist for the Good Samaritan Award at She Podcasts Unplugged. And although Therapy Chat wasn't selected as a winner, We were very happy to celebrate with all of the wonderful podcasters who were there. Everyone who was there was trying to make a difference in a positive way in the world. And I'm going to be bringing you some of those podcasters and the work they do in future episodes. So I can't wait to share those with you. There were lots of exciting things that went on and I'm making a lot of exciting plans, including to be at Psychotherapy Networker in March for sure. So just stay tuned to hear more about that. And if you're on the email list, I'll be giving you all the inside scoop. So today I'm very excited to be bringing you this conversation. If you listen to this show, you are aware that it's not just my opinion. Data backs this up. The childhood trauma is a problem that threatens our our world. The effects of childhood trauma, I think you can see them all around you in the violence and the division and the fear and mistrust that is so prevalent politically in so many places and related to political views and what's been happening here in the U.S. over the past mm, 10 years or so, maybe longer, but that's how long I've been aware of the um the ways that childhood trauma is entering into, it's kind of like the shadow of childhood trauma is entering into our public discourse, but our culture is very hesitant to actually acknowledge and address trauma. And, you know, I think that's a intergenerational thing. It's not 
it's not a simple situation. But my guest today is someone who really wants to make a difference in this area. And his name is Dr. Mark Hauser. Mark Hauser's scientific research includes over 300 published papers and seven books focusing on how the brain evolves, develops, and is altered by experience and neurodevelopmental disorders with an emphasis on the processes of learning and decision-making, as well as the impact of traumatic experiences on development. His educational and consulting work has focused on the implementation of quantitative brain-based methods for teachers, clinicians, and doctors working with children who have different disabilities, including those that result from a history of traumatic experiences. Mark Hauser earned a Bachelor of Science degree from Bucknell University and a PhD from UCLA and postdoctoral fellowships from the University of Michigan, Rockefeller University, and UC Davis. And he was a professor at Harvard University from 1992 to 2011. His most recent book, Vulnerable Minds, is coming out in March 2024. And we had an awesome conversation about the subject of childhood trauma. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation with Dr. Mark Hauser and that it may give you some hope and inspiration for how we all can do something about this problem. The great thing about it is we can't necessarily prevent that traumatic experiences happen like illness, things that aren't abuse related, but there can still be experiences that can be traumatic. But what we can do is when those experiences happen, we can know how to support children right then when it happens and help them so that it doesn't impact their development for the rest of their, you know, life. And so that it doesn't cause them the long-term emotional and physical health effects that are the result of unresolved trauma. So as always, I thank you for listening to Therapy Chat, and I hope that you will find this very thought-provoking. Talk to you soon. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Mark Hauser. Mark, thank you so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. Thank you, Laura. Looking forward to the conversation. Me too. I was I was immediately interested when I found out about your book, Vulnerable Minds, The Harm of Trauma and the Hope of Resilience. And I really can't wait to get into talking about both childhood trauma and resilience and how people can access healing at any stage of the process. But before we get into it, can you just start off by telling our audience a little more about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So my my background is in the sort of the neurosciences, cognitive neurosciences. And for many, many, many years, which continues, I was involved in really basic research, both with non-human animals and humans, children and adults, kind of healthy populations, clinical populations. And for the past sort of 13, 14 years, I've been involved working primarily in the school context, both nationally and internationally with at-risk children, children who have disabilities, including children who have, let's say, emotional challenges or, tra- or issues that result from having had traumatic experiences, including living with them in the moment. And so the work that I've been doing in schools and in, 
in parts of East Africa, like Kenya, is really trying to both work with the students themselves and help the teachers, nurses, doctors, social workers who work with these children to help give them interventions that really might help both build the resilience and aid in recovery in the case of traumatic experiences. So that's really the work I do. I'm absolutely passionate about teaching. And one of the reasons why I wrote the book was because I felt that there was a really spectacular amount of knowledge tucked away in the scientific literature that wasn't really A, making it into the hands of practitioners, including parents taking care of children, including teachers, nurses, and doctors, and B, that the work that was studied in the sciences and published wasn't necessarily being translated in a way that it could be used in these different environments. So that was really the hope for the book, was to bring this knowledge to a very wide community of people, including nationally and internationally. The book has a real cross-cultural slant to it, and focused on specifically children, because in my opinion, at least, the vast majority of books that are in the trauma area really focus on adults who may have had childhood experiences that were toxic to them or traumatic, as opposed to the children themselves. So this is really a book about children who are living with different kinds of traumatic experiences and what we can do to help. So who did you write this book for? What's the intended audience? The intended audience is really very, very broad, in part because the issue is so broad. I had in mind certainly parents of children who have experienced traumatic experiences. I certainly had in mind teachers who are working with children in schools who will certainly be confronting kids who have had traumatic experiences, including things that I assume we'll we'll be talking about, children who went through COVID deprived of their social relationships were severely traumatized. And certainly any teacher knows that we're seeing the repercussions of that neglect of social interactions. Because of the children that I work with often who are who often have different kinds of health-related issues, I'm also speaking to doctors and nurses, many of whom I've spoken to about this work and were really unfamiliar with much of what I've written about in the book. I would add, I'm also very interested in people involved in policy because some of these issues dovetail into national and international policy. And it's important that people understand the nature of what's going on, the kinds of things that will help with children recovering from some of the trauma and building resilience. And so there's, and then of course, the victims themselves. Yes. Because some of the victims, children, adults, may believe that what happened to them is unique in some way or that they're, they're, they've been specially targeted and that there's no one else who could have possibly gone through this experience. And so coming to the realization that they're not alone and that there is concern and care for them and that there are ways to help, certainly for children who feel that, this can be a sort of a recognition and an awareness and an acknowledgement of why it's so important that they understand what happened to them. Yes, thank you. That is so true. And I'll add, there's the phenomenon of people thinking, why did this happen to me? It must be me. But there's also the, everybody I know went through the same things. So the way I feel 
is probably just because something's wrong with me in, in general and not related to those experiences, which seem normal to me. And that's one of the, you know, regardless of circumstance, every trauma survivor, every adult trauma survivor I've worked with thinks that what happened to them wasn't as bad as what some other people have been through. And they don't make a connection between why they feel the way they do and those past experiences. So this is wonderful. And I think another thing is that the effects of trauma can be so hidden. And then there's like a mistaking the way it's hidden for the person being just fine. And they even think they're just fine. But there's all this other stuff going on inside that they're not aware of. Oh, I have so much to ask you about. But let's start off with talking about, well, I'm sure you talk about this in the book, which I haven't read all of yet. But can you say something about the the cost of not addressing the impact of childhood trauma? Because there's a tremendous cost. Yes. So there have been some very interesting kind of economic analyses. And I want to bracket this by saying many of your listeners will potentially get numbed out by hearing the magnitude of the issues the World Health Organization estimates that each year, approximately a billion children are maltreated globally. A billion, right? We only have 8 billion people in the world. So this is a monumental number. And as with any kind of large scale phenomena like climate change or global poverty, many of us tend to get really numb when we hear figures like that, because of course we think, well, what could I possibly do, right? So that's, that's, that's one piece. But where economists have done work is when they look at the health correlates of adverse childhood experiences, such as abuse and neglect and domestic violence exposure and so forth, that the consequences are massive because of what's happening to the health of the individual, physical and mental because those physical and mental health issues are sometimes correlated or associated with loss of employment opportunity. So they're, they're not contributing to the workforce either for themselves or for anyone else and can be linked to subsequent criminal behavior. So you have this cascade of consequences that some people estimate, even if you just look at you know, North America and Europe can be a trillion dollars a year. And, you know, those are estimates, needless to say. So these are monumental effects that, you know, then can be taken down to the individual level where you talk about, which I talk about throughout the book, children that I've had the absolute privilege, but sadness of working with because I see the devastation that it leaves them. It, it rips the childhood away from many of these kids. And when the schools are working well and when the schools are working with, with a parent or parents, if the parents are there to be worked with and brought into the problem that the child's facing and help, there are beautiful stories of recovery too. But for me, both writing the book and living with the children that I work with in the schools and the staff that work with them. The first part of the book, which talks about the harm, is, I have to admit, a, it was a hard write and it's a hard read because it's all about the ways in which 
we as human beings have created environments that are effectively harmful to children's development. You know, the good news is that it then turns into the hopeful part of the book about what can be done and what has been done effectively to help. And so that's why the audience for me, I really hope people from this broad range of people and globally, this isn't just a book for Americans or even Westerners. And I was very mindful of that. I mean, we may come back to it because this is a global problem. Americans aren't unique in this way. Certain states aren't unique. These kinds of adversities, being exposed to domestic violence, being exposed to a parent with mental health problems, being exposed to a parent who might be incarcerated. This is not something that's, you know, unique to any part of the world. And so it's very important that we think about this cross-cultural lens because what may, quote unquote, count as an adverse childhood experience here may be viewed very differently in Kenya or China or Vietnam or some other country and how you work with children in different countries will in some cases be different because of various cultural norms and various expectations and various perspectives on medicine and different kinds of intervention, including religion. So the book really is sensitive to these cross-cultural issues that, of course, any teacher in the United States ought to be too, because we are not just teaching American-born children. There are immigrants coming from everywhere, and we need to be sensitive to that. A hundred percent. And even children who may have been born here, if their parents were immigrants or even their grandparents, that's a, a close relationship to a, a traumatic experience of just the immigration experience. Absolutely. So something that you, I saw, I saw referenced in your book. I'm not sure how much you go into it. Cause as I'm you know, I don't like to pretend I've completely read something I haven't yet read, but I'm very interested in reading the whole book, is the UN Commission on Human Rights of Children. Can you say something, since we're talking about policy a little bit, can you say something about what that is and where the U.S. stands with it? Yeah, I mean, you know, globally, as part of some of the global initiatives, is the protection of the child from, you know, abuse and neglect effectively, right? And clearly, every nation in the world is failing that at least in the sense that there is no nation in the world that there are not children who are neglected and abused. And, you know, one thing just to bring it to the relevance of our own country and the recent COVID experience is that many child and family services throughout the country reported a, you know, 30, 40, 50% decrease in the reporting of abuse and neglect cases. That wasn't because it went down. It was because teachers who have eyes on kids did not have eyes on kids because the kids weren't in school. So a real downside, again, of the lack of schooling is not only the kind of immaturity that emerged because they didn't have those social experiences they expect, need, and want, but because teachers who are often the eyes on children who are not getting what they need at home or who are getting things they don't need at home, are often reporters. They're mandatory reporters. And that just wasn't happening. And so we know that, and of course, anybody who's an educator knows because they've got children in their care who have been neglected or abused or both. And so these are things that are happening. So we are vastly underachieving when it comes to meeting 
these global standards for child protection. And that's why there continues to be organizations in every country of child protection services. So the reality is, despite the kind of acceptance of the UN Convention policies about protecting children against abuse and neglect, we are failing. Now, the the good news, of course, is that in many countries, there is significant awareness of this, and there are certainly things afloat to help children. But, you know, and here just again to give it a little bit of a cross-cultural spin, I am working in Kenya. Kenya has 3 million orphans. Sub-Saharan Africa has 54 million orphans. This is a massive number. These children have been abandoned. Now, there are all sorts of causal pathways to their being abandoned. But the reality is many of them are either homeless or they're in children's home to being taken care of by wonderful people who have massive hearts, but often don't know about what's happened to these children and what they can be doing to help them grow. They're nurturing them the best they can. They're obviously often completely underfunded. There's often a poor connection with the government and so forth. So, you know, and that is certainly the case with children who are in group homes or foster care. Many of them, those children are not necessarily getting what they need. And some of that, I would venture to say a lot of that is lack of knowledge, lack of knowledge of how neglect, abuse transform that child's developing body and brain. And without that knowledge, we can't target the right kinds of interventions to help them both recover and hopefully build resilience. Yes. So let's talk about building resilience. What do you mean when you talk about resilience? Let's start there because I think people have ideas about what it is. So, you know, it's interesting. Resilience is kind of part of a, you know, a vernacular of a common, commonly used word. Trauma has become that as well. And I think both have the risk of being used in a colloquial, casual way that can in some ways undermine the actual work that needs to be done. As you certainly know, as a therapist, trauma, especially in the sense of post-traumatic stress disorder, really came into the clinical world through the work on veterans, where initially people thought they were crazy from the war experience. And then it became really clear that it was a clinically diagnosable disability that was absolutely stultifying in terms of any kind of progress people could make with PTSD. An interesting point here, we can kind of come back to that too. There's been interesting work of late on describing a phenomenon that wouldn't clinically be counted as PTSD for children, but it often now goes by the name of developmental trauma disorder. It's got a different kind of complexion than PTSD. So we can come back to that. But trauma has also been used very, very casually by many like, oh my God, I'm so traumatized because I didn't get to go on my cruise. Yeah, okay. (laughs) You know, that's not what we're talking about. So in the same way that the trauma is really effectively the scarring of the body and brain due to experiences which are adverse, and we should come back to what we mean by that too, resilience is not in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's not in the international classification either. But resilience is basically the ability to bounce back from adversity. And what's important here, which I discuss in the book, is that 
we can often think of, people often think of resilience in terms of the individual, but resilience is really kind of a team effort. And resilience is in part the biology that an individual brings to the world from what they got from their parents, their biology, and what happens in the environment. And that's equally true for the traumatic response. So what I'd like the listeners to kind of get in their heads right now as an image is a scale or spectrum that, let's say, starts on the left with a traumatic, vulnerable response to adverse experiences, and on the far right, a resilient response. So we have adverse childhood experiences, and someone can respond either traumatically to that, or they can respond in a resilient way to that. And that response, either end of the spectrum or anywhere in between, is a contribution of the individual's biology and their environment. And that's important because you may start off on the vulnerable end because your biology in some ways predisposes you more to that vulnerable traumatic response. Somebody else with exactly the same experience may start on the resilient. So now the question is, how can environmental issues shift you around? And they can go both ways, right? More adversity, potentially more traumatic responses more supportive types of environments or interventions, pushing you more onto the resilient side. So that's why it's so important. And this is where, you know, in one way, the, the book sort of starts is that many of your listeners may be aware of the work on adverse childhood experiences or the ACE score. And this is an important concept that was really brought to kind of awareness, at least in some ways publicly or scientifically, in 1998, when Dr. Vincent Felitti, a preventative medicine doctor in San Diego, published the work from a survey that he had created that asked 10 questions to adults over the age of 18 about whether they had any one of the following 10 adverse childhood experiences, emotional neglect, physical neglect, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, parent with mental health issues, incarcerated parent, divorce or separation, substance abuse, and domestic violence. So your score was either zero, I have had none of those, or add all of them, 10, okay? That score was then correlated with health issues. And the key finding, without going into the gory details, which we certainly can, the book does, is that the higher the A score the higher the health risk for the population. So this wasn't a score for the individual. It's not like a screening test like cancer. I screen you for cancer, either I find the cancer cells or I don't. This was a score that people in general who have higher A scores have higher health risk scores. And that's where that economic analysis comes from. In general, the more ACEs, the worse the health risks, the greater the burden economically on society and, of course, the individual. So that is why it's so important to think about the experience and the response to the experience as being different things. And here we have the important issue of individual differences, which there are massive ones. And it's from understanding that those individual differences exist that we can better understand 
So what makes somebody more resilient? What gives somebody better protective, you know, armory against the adversity? And what makes others more vulnerable? And so the story in the book is really an unfolding of the knowledge we've gained over decades now on what constitutes adverse childhood experiences, where I try to pull apart what do we mean by adverse, what do we mean by childhood, and what do we mean by experience, and then what are the ways that you can see traumatic responses. And here it's very important for your listeners to understand that not only is the brain potentially affected by adverse childhood experiences, but the other two big systems of the body, the autonomic system and the immune system. And what we know, again, from people living with chronic long tenure adversity is that it hammers the stress system and that hammering of the stress system affects the immune system, which is why you can often see individuals who look like they're fine on the surface and their immune systems have been compromised. Yes. And that is, I think that's one of the things that stands out to me a lot when we think about what teachers see in school. A teacher can see a child whose clothes are ripped or they wear the same thing every day and they, they don't appear that their hygiene is being attended to by their caregivers or if they have bruises or other injuries that the teacher can see, you know, or they don't look like they're growing in the typical development pathway. But there are so many people who are suffering, even if they don't feel it because it's disconnected, but it's happening. And the, the internal process is going on, whether we realize it or not, when we can be so adaptive and appear resilient by pushing through and, you know, maybe achieving great heights, but then there's a point where either health crashes, maybe not for everyone, but it's either mental health or physical health. At some point, it, it's like it comes back and hits you. That's right. And I think, let me, let me um, illustrate that with kind of one example of someone who many listeners I'm sure will know, and then a study that supports kind of the overarching idea behind the case. So many of your listeners will be familiar, of course, with the music and life of Sinead O'Connor, who died recently at 56. And if you haven't done it as a listener, I would highly encourage you just to Google Sinead O'Connor teenager and just look at her face. Most of the images that are online that you can see of Sinead O'Connor when she was a young teen, as she was becoming a pop icon, you know, selling, you know, her first album incredibly, is this sparkling, effervescent, dynamic, cheerful looking team. You know, I mean, you couldn't ask for someone who looked more captivating and alive and passionate. And we now know from her autobiography that she had one of the most severe, abusive childhoods from her mother that you could imagine. It was punishing such that she would run away and not go to school and play her guitar. But you wouldn't know it from seeing it. You certainly wouldn't know it from the success she had early on. And yet she was suffering, deeply, deeply suffering. And 
and undoubtedly a compromised immune and autonomic systems that were really getting hammered and certainly psychologically, which she talks about. So here is somebody who, again, on the surface, looked like she was skating through life and certainly resilient to some extent because she didn't cave. Some with the same experience would have caved and done nothing. So this is a beautiful example, as sad as it is, of someone who, although was deeply hurt by it, also had some elements of resilience to be able to do what she did as an entertainer, as a pop star. And so forth. That kind of example has been powerfully illustrated by a study that was done in the kind of inner city of Chicago with African-American kind of young adults. And what they simply did to sort of, you know, give the sort of the essence of the study is they provided in these individuals with a kind of a self-control assessment tool. So trying to look at, you know, on again, thinking of a scale, you know, I like the imagery, you know, on one end, you've got somebody who's super impulsive, you know, just can't wait, takes high risk. And on the other hand, you have somebody who's very controlled and disciplined, you know, does their work, you know, doesn't overeat, you know, all these other things that might be related to self-control. And they then got information from these individuals about, you know, their job success, their health, wealth, and other kinds of measures of, you know, for want of a better word, success, success in health, success in wealth, success in jobs. And the basic result they found was that those individuals, again, within this population who had higher self-control also had higher wealth and health and jobs and so forth. And that's something that's found, you know, pretty consistently in lots of different areas. So better self-control, kind of better health, wealth, and so forth. But what they also did was they were able to collect some biological data on how our basically system ages. So here's the idea that the listeners should be getting. We have our chronological age, which is you were born on December 1st, you know, 1959, and you are now, you know, 64 years old. Okay, so that's just your chronology. That's when you were born. Here's how you old you are today. But there's also our biological clock, and there are various aspects of our kind of molecular biology that will show signs of aging in the same way that when you cut open a tree and look at the, the root, you can see the rings of the tree as measures of stress to that tree, okay? So our biology is capturing stress on the system, and therefore, Someone who has not lived a very stressful life will have a biological clock that is more closely aligned with their chronological clock. Someone who's experienced a lot of stress will have a much older biological clock. They are old souls in a younger chronology. That's what they found with the African-American young adults who had high self-control. They were older souls. By suppressing the stress and keeping it at bay, they were effectively aging themselves. So that tells a very important story that on the one hand, a measure of success is the ability to self-control, to regulate yourself. 
but by keeping things under wraps all the time, chronically, that is stressful. And this is a very important thing for parents and teachers to be aware of. You have kids who are living in, let's say, difficult conditions that are stressful at home, maybe domestic violence, maybe homelessness, all sorts of things that are stressful to a child. Poverty. Too, poverty. And then they got to get on a bus and keep their act together for 45 minutes. And then they got to get into school. They got to sit in their chair. And they're constantly being asked to keep their stress levels manageable. With all the stimulation around them. Exactly. You know, Johnny's making noises that I don't like. You know, someone's picking on me. I mean, it's just endless self-control demands. Mm -hmm. And there's not necessarily in some schools opportunities to release, to not have to exert self-control, to give it a break or to build habits where self-control is not needed. And so this is an important message and not only for children with traumatic histories, but for any child, right? School is a demand for self-control all day long. When did they get a break, right? And you might think, oh, recess. For some kids, recess is a nightmare, right? Because there's all this social hierarchy and all these things to navigate. And I may not be so good at that. So it's really important for parents and teachers and educators in general to be thinking about the situations that require self-control from a child. And especially for a child living with certain kinds of traumatic experiences where they may be trying to put the lid on their stress just to manage the day. That is so, so important. And I'm really grateful that you said that. I was afraid you were going to say that being having high self-control was the the ones who made it, you know, and, and that's because our culture says be regulated. Don't be dysregulated. Kids need to be regulated. And what we think regulated looks like is not moving, not being loud, you know, being quiet and submissive and compliant. Right. And that could be that child is literally having to dissociate through their day. And then it's like, why aren't they paying attention? Correct. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, the part of the story here is that there's now a growing body of evidence from the sciences that people who we think of as having strong self-control actually don't have strong self-control. They have better habits where they don't have to use self-control. And that's an important tell, again, for teachers and parents, is that we want to give children and adults (laughs) habits of mind so that they don't need the self-control. So when you think about dieting efforts or not biting your fingernails or, you know, any number of things that challenge the self-control system, people who don't have habits, they don't put certain foods in their, you know, pantries. They find ways to exercise and make sure that becomes a habit, that they do it all the time. Work habits to make sure things get done where they don't, you know, slough off and have a drink instead or they don't go out and play instead or whatever it is. So it's really giving children habits so it becomes almost automatic and you don't need the self-control system anymore. And so that's one of the things that I kind of develop in the book are some of the strategies that, that have for children to help 
with a self-control problem by building habits that then don't require self-control. Yeah, that's that makes sense. And you know, what I know from like polyvagal theory is about how what gets interrupted with trauma and attachment injuries is the flexibility of our system to be able to be quiet for a bit, but then be able to move. And, you know, it's supposed to be fluid and eight hours or six hours of sitting in a classroom, being quiet, being still and not doing all the things that your body wants to do because you're a kid is like, you know, you're stuck in that one it's like frozen energy. That's right. And I think, you know, glad you brought up kind of polyvagal theory, which of course I assume many of your listeners probably are, are familiar with. One of the things that's important about the idea, and which of course the key is that we have this, you know, long meandering nerve, the vagal nerve, which is critically involved in the autonomic system. And in terms of, you know, we see in terms of regulating things like our heartbeats and our heart rates. And it's critically involved in our social and restful states. And what's key here, and this is a really important piece, what I note in the book, is that what can really undermine kind of vagal control and that sense of calm and rest and safety is specifically the kind of maltreatment abuse types of adversity emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, domestic violence, community violence. And it's important to, to be clear on that because deprivation or neglect doesn't do that. That leads to kind of a what I call a different traumatic signature. So for me, an important concept in the book is to be thinking about what I like to refer to as traumatic signatures. And that's why, again, the notion of trauma as an umbrella term I find less useful. Mm -hmm. But respect to kind of the polyvagal theory and stress and calm and sociality, the threatening types of adversity, different kinds of abuse, domestic violence, and so forth, those are the ones that really put the child in an alert state, an alarm state. One of the first classrooms I, I was working in in the school, I walked into the classroom and this little boy Lily bolted out of the classroom. I was like, I didn't even say anything or look at him. I probably really, really, and the teacher said, no, 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 no. You look like his abusive father. Oh. And I was like, oh my God. And so I remember I, he didn't come back for that class. Next class I had, I came in, I sat on the floor. I didn't look at him. I started talking to those students and he said, why are you looking at me? I said, oh, did you want to talk to me? I said, come over here. So he came around and started talking to me and I was now lower than he was. So that dominant stance was no longer there, the threat of me. I still had my face on, of course, but I now became a little bit less stressful to him. And gradually over time, he was able to see me as someone safe. And therefore the process of generalizing rather than being the entire world of people who look like Mark, you know, are bad, he began to learn and the system became calmer and that vagal control came in and he was now able to deal with someone like me. And so that sense of safety 
is what is often so triggered in these children because seeing the world as unsafe is way more adaptive than going just this guy. And so it's a highly adaptive move for a child in the same way that if a young gazelle sees a lion chasing him, he doesn't go, oh, it's just Mr. Bob Lion. No, it's anybody who looks like a lion is bad. Yeah. Good move, buddy, <laughs> right? And so it's really important the same way to think of the child who is going to generalize from the adverse experience that, well, therefore, maybe all men, for example, are unsafe. And so that's often the very difficult work that schools face because they don't necessarily know the history. Right. They may just see the consequences. And so that's where the art of school and education and trauma-informed programs really work. Yes, I think it's so beautiful that the teacher knew why he bolted from the classroom and knew to tell you he's not a bad child. He's not a no. problem. He's reacting to his system telling him that there's a threat and it's a legitimate yeah. feeling for him. And and that in itself is so rare for the teachers to even know how to recognize or to know that children's behavior is a communication and not a threat to the teacher's control. That's right. And I think, you know, I, I work with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of teachers and clinicians and, and, you know, with the kids themselves. And I can, you know, honestly say, you know, it's one of the hardest jobs around. And, you know, just the other day, I had to be involved in a physical restraint of a child because the child was hurting others and herself. And it's something that one hopes to not ever have to do. But sometimes it's the only protective mechanism you have when there's a child who is really out of control. The challenge, of course, is you're involved there. It's not pleasant for anybody. And then five minutes later, you got to be, hey, can we work on this problem together? And you have to put away, this kid just whacked me <laughs> really hard. <laughs> My and ear to, hurts. And the next day you go, hey, how you doing? You know, and I'm, I'm still here. And you have to, and that's so hard, right? Rather than say, what is wrong with you? You know, why would you do that? Well, that's the wrong move, both tonality and linguistically. And I think that's where, it's such a hard job because you have to keep coming back as a teacher every day and be there for that child. And so I just, you know, I do want to fly. This is not easy work. And this is why it's so important that we support teachers and clinicians working in these schools where these children are and they need our support and they need that lens of what can I do to help you so that this doesn't happen again. And that's a very hard lens to maintain. It is. And I think... That was something that I was thinking about while you were talking about the classroom. I thought teachers don't get the support they need. They have these other metrics and things that they have to focus on that prevent them from having, you know, because of the way you interact that's trauma sensitive is slower and it's attuned to what's happening. It's not about, right. well, I have to get these standardized, you know, test score teachings done or whatever. And these children are like the ones who are in the way of my class having the success that I, right. my job is 
measured based on and our whole school's performance in our state and, you know, and, and to be whacked by a kid, it's normal to have a react, a trauma reaction to being totally physically hurt, even though you might logically know this child is a sweet little child and it's not their fault, but your system is like, ow, I just got hurt. Yeah. I don't feel really. safe now yeah. with this person, you know? That's right. And I think too, I just want to yeah. say parents struggle with the same challenges, same even though they do know their child, you know, they can have a trauma reaction too. That's right. And I think that brings up a really important issue, which is that many of the teachers who work with children have themselves had traumatic experiences. Very true. And the experience with these children can be re-triggering of those memories and experiences in the same way that many parents grew up with childhood trauma themselves. And now they're reliving some of those or they don't necessarily know how to interact and attach and support a child because that was never modeled for them or because of their history, they don't have the tools to do that. So here's just, you know, again, kind of an interesting result that is so painful to hear but a lot of work that's come out of some of the war-torn areas, including specifically research out of Israel, you haven't gotten to it, the one part of the book that's about war, oddly for me, starts with a story that happened to a ch children in Gaza in 2021. That's when I wrote that chapter. And here we are today. We are back where we were. So it is a little bit bizarre and surreal for me to have that, ha have that happen. But the work comes out of a woman named Rachel, Rachel Feldman, Ruth Feldman, part, sorry, who is a neuroscientist in Israel. And she has studied for many, many, many years, both mothers and children in Gaza on the Israeli side. And to make a long story short, many, many papers, here's to me a really important result. She has shown that mothers exposed to the war have the system of the brain, the systems of the brain that are involved in empathy, effectively be shut down. The chain reaction of that shutdown empathy system is they often don't recognize or even see the pain of the child they have because empathy is putting yourself in someone else's shoes and they simply can't do that. And so the child then becomes neglected. So the classic attachment kind of metaphor that many people use is that what attachment of parent and child is in the early stages, especially, is it's a serve and return relationship. Baby serves up a need, mom or dad return that serve. That's not to say that every serve needs to be returned because when a three-year-old says, I want an iPhone, you're like, sorry. No, some servers are out of bounds and they should be out of bounds and you don't respond. But when attachment works well, there's a synchrony between the serve and return. A mom and or dad whose empathy system is out to lunch, out of commission, is not going to have that serve and return relationship. And that attachment will not happen. Empathy is not modeled. Security and safety is not there for that child. Curiosity is not there for that child. And those children now having been followed longitudinally lack many of the pro-social skills that we see in children not exposed to that. So many people may listen going, yeah, but we don't have war. 
it's not really about war. It's about chronic stress. Somebody living in chronic poverty, not knowing where they're going to get their next food item. Somebody living with community violence, guns going off all the time, right? There are many other chronic stress systems that can tax a mother, both during pregnancy and postnatally. And so it's really important that we think also about how we are going to help mothers build up resilience and buffer that stress system because chronic stress during pregnancy and postnatally is very harmful to her as a caretaker. And it's not in some ways, right? It's not her fault. She is a victim of the environment which is taxing her stress system. Yeah. I am thinking too about just how for parents who experience oppression based on their gender, race, religion, culture, it's, it's, that's a form of chronic stress. That's like the water we swim in that we don't even know we're in water. Like a fish doesn't know. Right. And that's right. So, and even when you said we don't, we don't have war, like we don't really have war here in the U S really, but at least not in the past century, but people who live here are impacted by war through, you know, if you look at just to start with the 20th century, World War One, World War Two, Yeah. And then, and of course, all the other historical events that impacted people. And I think we really discount that because we look at living here in the U.S., it's like, well, look, we're safe. And we, those kinds of problems that are around the world don't really affect us here. But it's not true. When our parents may have served in the military, you know, they may have fought in a war somewhere else. And then, you know, how that affected their attachment and their parenting. And yeah, right. It's all woven yeah, and together. I mean, it is all woven together. And let, and let me just add, so there's some texture for the listeners as well. School shootings, racial violence, anti-Semitic violence, right? All the protests, you know. Palestinian protests, Israeli protests, you know, people feeling like, okay, there's now this anti-Semitic movement that has popped up in this country. You know, all these issues of discrimination and oppression sometimes linked to violence within our own country. Mm -hmm. A lot. And a child, a lot. And a child who all of a sudden sees a, you know, a metal detector being put into their school or lockdown, you know, operations, how else can they not think, okay, this is because I too could be shot at. So it doesn't take a genius to make the link. And so that's why it's so important to realize that that kind of chronic stress, unpredictability, uncontrollability that the child experiences is ultimately toxic to their developmental systems. And Again, we haven't didn't have much time to chat about today, but an important piece of this is that the there are different windows of experience where certain kinds of experience are necessary for the child to develop those typical systems of thought, emotion, sensory perception, movement, and so forth. And if the experience either doesn't happen, as in cases of neglect or deprivation, or adverse experiences happen, those windows can shut down and those systems may neither never develop or there may be spectacular delays in their development. And so that's why in the original study saying 
childhood is birth to 18. I mean, that's so much time. And when those things happen can critically affect different systems. And we need to understand that. And we are understanding that in many cases so that we can intervene and help the child get the necessary experiences quickly before things shut down. Yeah, I know we have to stop. I just, if you don't mind, there's two more things I'd like to quickly get into. One is, I mean, I just want to sort of like summarize that the earlier we can intervene to help children who've experienced adversity, the better for them as individuals and for our whole world. Correct. But also, I was reading a book the other day, a couple of weeks ago, it was a memoir, and the writer was diagnosed with CPTSD and she had been physically abused in childhood. And when she learned about CPTSD or developmental trauma, she took the information in as my brain, you know, she saw some of those brain scan images like, oh, my brain is defective because of this. And I am like stunted and, and, and impaired. And of course, PTSD can be, it's a legitimate disability, but I would like to end on just some kind of summarization about the hope of resilience and post-traumatic growth that I know you cover in the book. Yep. Yeah. So the, you know, the last chapter of the book is called neuroengineering. And in some ways, it's a somewhat of a radical chapter. We like so that. Some may be <laughs> controversial. But what I focused on is, and this is important, I try to look at several kind of developing and in some cases, well-developed interventions that kind of go beyond the classical therapeutic approaches, which is in no way to deny at all the importance of the therapeutic approach approaches, because obviously there are many different kinds. And in fact, one of the techniques that I mentioned at the end is the psychedelic movement. And important for many of your listeners who may be familiar with this is the psychedelic movement that has gained tremendous traction over the last decade or so is not sending people on a wild trip of LSD, but it's critical that it's called therapy-assisted psychedelic treatment. And what I find exciting about this, and, and again, as a footnote here, is that several of the techniques that I mentioned have really only been legitimately developed and scientifically supported by work with adults. So for some of these, and psychedelics, of course, is a perfect example, we are not certainly yet there for any treatment with kids. And of course, you can imagine that many parents would be completely averse to even the thought about that. But the idea of the um, developing brain and psychedelics together just doesn't sound not quite a right. It, not yet. <laughs> not right yet. Exactly. But, and here's where I, 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 I find myself as a scientist just extremely hopeful and excited about this corner. And again, many other ones that I can maybe really touch upon. So with the psychedelics, the, the, the real progress has come with two, MDMA or ecstasy, the more commercial uh, version of, of it, with PTSD, and psilocybin with major depression. And the reason why I find these two sort of paths very, very important is because 
we understand a lot more about how it's working and what's going on. And the experiments that have been done have been very well and carefully controlled. So it's very, very high quality science. Not there's not room for growth, there always is. But here's what I find exciting. In both the studies of major depression and in the studies of PTSD, these are individuals who have been classified as treatment resistant, meaning that neither medication nor therapy has worked. They still carry, and for many of them, carry for 10 to 12 years the clinical symptoms of either major depression or PTSD. All right. So that's, that's a starting point. These are people who are like, you know what? Nothing's worked. Right. All right. What each of these studies has found is that by the end of therapy-assisted psychedelic treatment, psilocybin or MDMA, you get somewhere on the order of 60 to 70% complete being done with the clinical diagnosis of PTSD or major depression. I mean, that's a result you get in physics, <laughs> not psychology or medicine. And so I don't think there's any know, again, antidepressants that have had that kind of result. Not that efficacious. And so, I mean, again, this isn't, you know, 10,000 subjects. It's a small number. There's no long-term follow-up. How long does this last? You, I mean, we don't know. It's like, in some ways, ozempic, right? Seems like that may be a, a solution for some for weight gain, but we don't have any longitudinal studies. And now this is being allowed for young kids. But we don't know what the consequences mm. of a life sentence of Ozempic is. We just don't know. So we're in the same boat here. The other techniques, one is a kind of a neurofeedback or neurostimulation where you're basically sort of altering brain activity to potentially impact the sort of the brain processes that involved in the traumatic experience. And one that I cite in the book, which might just be a good one to kind of end with here, this is a technique where you're using effectively a magnet on the skull called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And what it effectively does is give you a temporary period where a particular area of the brain is effectively turned off. Here's the really beautiful study that I think speaks to the potential of this approach. You take people who have had visually powerful traumatic experiences, right? So obviously there are so many different kinds of traumatic experiences. The experience of living with neglect isn't necessarily a visually powerful one, but seeing a parent die in a car accident or seeing someone come in and burn down a house, or something that is just, the visuals are so dramatic. Something really so horrifying visually. Like, really horrifying visual. And that, of course, that's what the veterans are suffering right. from, right? They're coming back and the visuals are just everywhere, right? And so that when these memories come back, which of course is part of the PTSD, it's associated with these very powerful visuals, okay? Seeing a buddy get killed, okay, whatever it is. You take this transcranial magnetic stimulation and you apply it to a visual area known for imagery. And this has been very well established. And you have people recall back the trauma. And while they're doing it, you're stimulating that area. The effect is 
you don't lose the fact that you had that experience. You lose the visual imagery associated. Mm. And now it becomes much more manageable because you're not getting flooded with that imagery. So it's a form of kind of erasure, you know, erasing that piece of it. So this is, again, really important. TMS, again, has been certified for certain clinical issues, depression being one of them. And so we already have the beginnings of approval, again, for adults. It's a safe technique. I've been in experiments having done it to myself. You know, it's not something that is aversive. It's been clinically proven. It's being used everywhere for all sorts of things, including things like arresting cigarettes, uh, smoking, and so forth. So there are techniques like that, other kinds of biofeedback that I discuss in the book that are beginning to be ways in which we can add in new tools to the toolkits of people working with victims of traumatic experiences, especially children. There are many others I talk about in terms of techniques that can be used in schools, what communities can do for individuals and so forth. So there's a whole set of interventions, again, also culturally sensitive. Some of these systems would never work in certain kinds of communities or cultures. Others would be much more viable than others. And so the idea is to really showcase the wealth of things that can be done. Some are more resource heavy and expensive and some are not. And so the important piece here is that, and I think many people in the therapeutic area appreciate this, is that, you know, it's just never going to be sufficient to say, I do CBT and that's going to solve all the world's problems. That is an approach. It's got its effectiveness for some people. But we need to be thinking way outside the box and be able to pull in all sorts of tools into the toolkit, in part because the type of adversity matters, the timing of it matters, how long it lasted, right? Different kinds of adversity together can have different effects. And so we want to be thinking about the different dimensions of adversity and how those shape these traumatic signatures because by knowing that, we can harness these different tools. Now, that's very exciting. And it sounds... Hopeful. Yes, it's <laughs> hopeful. And, and it's your book is making the information more accessible to, to more people. And I'm very grateful so. for that. And I'm grateful that you took the time to share about it today here on Therapy Chat. Thank you so much for that. That's my pleasure, Laura. You know, I, for me, it's, it's a real joy to be able to talk about these issues and to hopefully get other people excited and passionate about it because there's so much we can do. I agree. And I feel like we see these problems as so insurmountable, but there's been years and years and years and years and years of research on how to solve these problems. All we need is the will to actually yes. do it. And that's what the policy makers and leaders have to step up and say, this matters. And so I hope this book will help people to be more aware of that. So where can people find everything that you're doing? So I think my my website is probably the best place because it's kind of uh, one-stop shopping. <laughs> so it's Mark D. Hauser, Mark with a C, D as in dog, and then Hauser, H-A-U-S-E-R.com, markdhauser.com. And there, there are links to Vulnerable Minds, the new book, and other books I've written, as well as the company I run called Risk Eraser which really works with 
children's and schools nationally and internationally. And soon, an organization, a 5013C I just started called the International Children's Aid Network, which is really focused on these children's homes or orphanages and the absolutely massive global issue that lies there and trying to do work to support children and the staff in these orphanages and homes so that we can better help these kids, which there are many of. Yes. I just have to say, Sinead O'Connor, before she passed, said that she had spent time in an orphanage in Ireland and that she was severely abused there as well. So that's exactly right. Yeah, that's right. So and so I think, you know, and I mean, and then, you know, a very significant part of the book talks about what happened in the Romanian orphanages, oh, yeah. which has not been the best studied examples of children in orphanages. The important message there is that, of course, we now deeply understand how deprivation like that undermines the thriving of children. So that's the important lesson. And of course, in part as a result of the work those scientists did, orphanages closed in most of Eastern Europe. However, the pattern that we see in orphanages in other parts of the world may be substantively different in the sense that in Eastern Europe, there was kind of a constant changing of the guard of staff. So there was no attachment or investment of others. Whereas in certainly some of the orphanages that I've visited and worked in in Kenya, the staff are more stable and regular. And so the attachments there, the children seem to be thriving more. So there's some important messages there about what it means to be working in a children's home or orphanage in terms of how children can thrive. Yes, and I, I'm picking up the the point. You're not saying it, but I'm picking up about collectivist cultures that are more more have more of a fabric of connection between and a sense of community yep. between its members versus highly individualistic cultures, which more Western and European based yes. cultures tend to have. Yes. Well. I'm so grateful. You see, I could talk about this for another couple hours, but I got to let you go. So thank you again so much for being my guest today, Mark. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate your time. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.